We started last week with a series, you can see the title behind me, called What We Believe. And what we're, what we're basically doing is we're just taking a little bit of an exploration, a very brief exploration into our statement of faith. Um, we probably won't do this very often, but since we're at year eight uh, in the life of the church, we thought, you know, that might be a good time for us to do this, especially given that we just preached a series called Being the Church. And I've had some of you come up and say, hey, I'd love to be able to know what our statement of faith is. You can go to our website and be able to read that. But it kind of made us think that maybe it was time to just unpack it a little bit so that everybody's kind of on the same page and knows where we're at. So we are part of a denomination. So maybe some of you don't know that. We're not an independent church, but we're part of a denomination called the Evangelical Free Church of America. I felt like that just took me an hour to say that. So from this point on, I'm going to say EFCA, which is what everybody affectionately calls it because again, time. Um, but this is, the, this is the group of churches that we, are, that we partner with um, in the gospel is the way we would phrase it. And um, again, you can go, go on the website and find out more information about the EFCA. But um, we, also hold, we also hold to their statement of faith. So because we're part of the EFCA, the EFCA statement of faith is our statement of faith. And so uh, last week we unpacked the first article in that statement, which was all about God. The second article, which was called the Bible. And today we're going to unpack the next three articles, which are on the back of your bulletin here. Or I'm sorry, the inside of your bulletin. I did that again last week. So I want you to imagine with me as we begin. Imagine there was an artist. So visualize an artist, a painter, who set up a canvas in the middle of this beautiful meadow. And he was able to paint the meadow in such a way that if you got close enough, you could barely pick out which one was real. The, the artist was, was so skilled, his, his colors were so vibrant, his sense of light and shadow, they were, they were so developed that he was unsurpassed by any other artist in the world. And then imagine that in addition to sort of this unmatched skill that he had, this artist also had this unbelievably kind and generous spirit. So instead of just hiding this painting away in his studio, he, he left it right there in the middle of the meadow so that everyone could behold it and enjoy it. And in fact, his only stipulation, his only rule was that nobody could touch the painting but they had to leave it as is so that they could enjoy it as he intended it to be enjoyed. But of course, something sad and strange happened after he left the painting in the meadow. Over time, people who would come into the meadow and see the painting would begin adding their own colors to it. They'd begin adding their own brushstrokes to the image. Now, eventually, the artist went back to look at his painting, and it had become just this unsightly mess of colors that were all bleeding into each other to the point where you could barely see what it had originally been. And the artist was so grieved by what he saw, by what had happened to his painting by seeing that the people who he created this painting for to enjoy had gone beyond his words and decided that they could improve the painting. They could add color. They could take his work into their own hands. 
but then he promised that one day he would paint something new again. And so this uh, is just a really brief and simple illustration of what happened when God created the world by his word. And human beings, that would be you and me, tempted to be like God, disobeyed the very words he had commanded them. That, by the way, he commanded them for their joy and flourishing. And it was at that moment that all of mankind and all of creation fell into this constant state of decay, which, by the way, ended in death, one per person. But God, we found, we find, the master creator, who is gracious and merciful, sent his own son to redeem what mankind had corrupted in their sin and disobedience. Mankind was beyond hope until hope dawned with the birth of Christ, who came to make everything that has gone into decay new again. Jesus was willing to pay it all because we possess nothing that could come close to paying the debt. This is the gospel for us. It's kind of like a child who would give his mom a penny after he pours black shoe polish all over the living room carpet. There was nothing in us to be able to pay back the mess that we made, the discolorization that our sin had on not only our own soul, but the state of the world. And this is what we're going to briefly look at today in our statement of faith. These three, what we call articles. First is the human condition. Second is Jesus Christ. And the third one is the work of Christ. So let's, if you turn to the inside of your bulletin, I want us to read each of these. We're just going to start with the first one, which says, we believe in the human condition. So let's read this aloud together. We believe that God created, you can read it with me, Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. Okay, so let's just stop right there and let's look at a couple of things that are related to the human condition that sort of flows out of this statement in faith. And the first one is this, it's that we are created in God's image. You should have already turned to Genesis 1. I'm going to pick up in verse 26, which says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. When you go down to verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and morning the sixth day. So what this tells us is that we were created in the very image of God, also called the Imago Dei. And you just want to let that sink in for a second. You were created, I was created in the image of God himself. Because what being created in the image of God means is that God is the source of our dignity. It means that God is the source of your significance because our image is rooted 
in him. It reflects him. It mirrors him. We mirror God. We declare the glory of God just by virtue of our createdness. Now, that's amazing if you just let that sink in for a second. Because like God, it means that we are rational beings. It means that we are moral beings. It means that we're, we're social beings. It means we're artistic beings. It means we are spiritual beings. Here's what the EFCA has further to say about what we're unpacking right now. It says, all human life at whatever stage of development, from conception to death, at whatever socioeconomic status, and at whatever level of physical or intellectual capability is sacred because all human beings are created in God's image. And listen what it, what it says right here. This is really important. Even when the image has been corrupted by our sin, every human being is still worthy of honor and, and respect. There is nothing more valuable in all of creation than human life. So what that does is, is it allows us to understand what God was doing when he created us, which was to give us a particular kind of dignity and a particular kind of value and significance that wouldn't have existed had we not been made in his image. And then the second thing it does, it kind of pulls us back a little bit. And it causes some sobriety when we look out and we see that when God told us to love our neighbor as ourself, it's tied into this idea that, hey, not only are we created in the image of God, but so is our neighbor. So is Kyle Gordon, right? So is David Sellers. So is Ethan Crumlick. He's bummed I just said his name right now, right? All made in the image of God, which is why we're called to live out this truth when we love our neighbors as ourselves. So we were created in God's image, and yet, and here's our second point, we fell into total depravity and became alienated from God. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 tells us, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Like it doesn't really get any clearer than that. So what this is saying is that when Adam sinned, we were all infected with the DNA of sin. All of humanity, and not even just humanity, but creation itself became corrupted with sin and decay as the result. And this is universal. Nobody gets to escape this. Nobody gets to walk around this. Psalm 14 tells us, there is none who does good. Not even one. Now let's qualify that. That doesn't mean that you can do a good deed, that you can't do a good deed. It doesn't mean that you can't commit a random act of kindness to your brother or sister or your neighbor. You can, but in the ultimate sense, what the Bible is trying to tell us over and over again is that the way we define good, which is like, hey, I just did a nice thing. I just, I just did a good deed. It's not good enough. So when we say good, it doesn't mean that somebody can't do some good. It means that in the ultimate sense that good is not good enough to get them square with God. Does that make sense? Mark Twain said that man is the only creature in all creation that can blush. And he is the only creature that needs to. Right? So our conscience 
right? Our conscience tells us we are not who we should be. All of us, none of us wake up every single morning of every single day of the year and just says, man, I got this. I don't know why everybody's complaining all the time. I don't know why people get depressed. I don't know why people like lack confidence because I don't. I got this thing all the way. That's none of you. All of us can sense whatever we think about God, whatever we think about the work of Jesus Christ, all of us has this innate sense in our conscience that something's wrong. Something's off. Something is not right. I am feeling things that I can't imagine God intended for me to feel when he created me. And by the way, that that conscience is speaking some truth into your heart, into your soul, that reflects a truth about God's intention toward us, is that that's true. He didn't create us for that. So we sin because we are sinners. Our hearts have been corrupted. Listen to this. I'm going to dive down a a little bit deeper. We have free will even. But the problem is that our free will is in bondage to sin. It turns out it's not so free, right? So apart from the Holy Spirit, even when we do something good, like we just pointed out, it's not good enough. Why? Because at the end of the day, our motivations aren't all the way good. Our motivations are corrupted. When Adam sinned, we fell into total depravity. We became alienated from God. We suppressed the truth. Paul says in Romans 1, listen to this phenomenal verse. He says, for the wrath of God, now we're just going there today, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Listen to what he says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So our conscience speaks to us about the truth and the moral purity about a God who at one point created everything perfect until we stepped back and attempted to be like him, take matters into our own hands, disobey him, and then suffer the consequences. Paul says later in that verse, we are without excuse. We are guilty. We know what is right, but we do what is wrong. And even the good we do comes from desires that are tainted and self-serving. It's in our shame that we deeply feel the effects of our sin. And by the way, we become deeply wounded by the effects of other people's sin. And by the way, it's why we're so drawn to justice. It's why we're so drawn to saying, hey, that's not right, and somebody should make that right. I don't like what I see. That person was unfairly harmed. That person was unfairly sinned against. Somebody should make that right. Man, that's just inherent in all of us. The problem is that we can't attain justice for ourselves and others in the ultimate sense. Because we're fallen because we're alienated 
from God. It's because our justice, as much as we do our best in society, and sometimes we do really well with it, but there is always going to be this sense that people are sinned against and justice needs to be served. And guess what? We're all really good about that as long as it's not coming back to us. Right? This is what the EFCA says, further unpacking this. Listen, new rules or religious rituals will not suffice. So our answer when it turns out that we are totally depraved and corrupted and alienated from God, it's not new rules or religious rituals. It says they will not suffice. Moral maxims are worthless, nor will a self-help manual do us any good. In this tragic condition, we need a divine savior, someone who can save us from God's wrath and renew us in God's image. Nothing less will do. This is where Article 2 comes in. So let's read this. We believe in Jesus Christ. Let's read this together. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. So the gospel, this good news, it's made known most supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way The only way that you can be justified in your sin and alienation from God is through me. Jesus said, I am the bread of life in John 6. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. In John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. So what do we believe then about Jesus? Here's a couple of things. We believe Jesus is fully God and fully Man, the EFCA goes on to say in our documents, he is fully and completely both at the same time. Listen to this, showing us the true nature of each. He's not a mixture of humanity and divinity, creating this sort of third kind of being. The son of God remained God. He never gave up being God, but he added real humanity to his divinity and he will remain forever human. Now, if we could just have time, we don't have time to sit here and meditate on that for 10 minutes, but there's a lot to meditate on when you consider the implications of that. And maybe you're even asking like, gosh, this just sounds like theology, Ronnie. Why does this matter? Because salvation depends on Jesus being fully God and fully man. The book of Hebrews tells us that, listen, he had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, he's our high priest, in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So this is what we know is that only as God did Christ have the power to bear our sins and conquer them. But only as a man was he qualified to do it. So that's where we get this fully God and fully man union that we find in Jesus Christ and why it had to be that way. As unbelievable as it sounds, it's why it had to be that way or we would still be lost in our sin. 
The second thing is that we believe Jesus lived without sin. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, John reminds us, there is no sin. Jesus is the only one who is perfectly qualified to fulfill his role as what's called our suffering servant. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, man. You're going to make a hard right all the way into the New Testament, into 2 Corinthians 5. And Paul tells us in verse 21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we believe that Jesus lived without sin because the Bible, God's word, and the people that spent time with Jesus affirmed this truth about him, that he was sinless as he was our servant who suffered for us. John 8, 29 says, he always did what pleased the Father. If we always did what pleased the Father, if we obeyed every command from Scripture that God the Father gave us, we would be perfect. We would be sinless. We do not. But it says that he always did what pleased the Father. Jesus had to be who he claimed he was for the work he did to be effective in saving fallen image bearers such as ourselves. And this gets us into Article 3, the work of Jesus Christ. Let's read this together. We believe in the work of Christ together. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. So what do we believe about that? Well, the first thing is we believe Jesus shed his blood on the cross. Make a hard right to 1 John chapter 1. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The Old Testament told us when, when the priests would give these sacrifices for the sins of the people and they would have to slaughter bulls and goats, it was because God said without the shedding of blood, there can't be remission. There can't be forgiveness of sins. So that leads us into what, what also we believe about the work of Christ is that we believe Jesus atoned for our sin because the sacrifices, what we found out as we read scripture, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, they're not enough. These are animals. It's not enough to atone completely for our sins. We need a spotless, sinless, sacrificial lamb who was fully God and fully man to accomplish this. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26 tells us, listen, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Man, it starts in Genesis. It takes us all the way through Revelation. Jesus Christ came to be our sacrifice to atone by the taking, by the shedding of his blood for the blood 
that we owed the Father for our sin. And in this way, we believe, thirdly, that he is our substitute. He is our representative. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus is a substitute. He's a sub, but not just any substitute. He's a righteous substitute who bears our penalty. See, we owed a penalty. We needed to pay a price for our sin. And he bore the penalty for our sin. But then he also represents us by calling us to pick up our cross and follow him in this new life that is ours because of our union with him. And then finally, we believe because of this that he is our only hope and only grounds for salvation. Let me pose a question, and it's this. Who can stand before a holy God? That's the dilemma of your life, just in case you didn't know that. That's the dilemma of my life. All these things we do in life, this very short, vapor-like existence that we all live, the question at the end of the day is when you stand before God, can you? Who can stand before a holy God? The answer is nobody. You can't. I cannot stand before a holy God. Not sinful human beings who have been alienated from God and are under his wrath, who bear the penalty of sin and are helpless to pay the price. The beauty and the hope, listen to this, of the gospel is this. God was not obligated to save you or me, but in his love and mercy, he sent his son to bear our sin, the penalty of it, so that we might not die in our sin for all eternity and separation from God. Christ is our hope because only he could pay it all. And praise God, he paid it all. And that's why we're here today with hope. That's why we're here today, able to sing the songs we did with joy. That's why we're here today, not enslaved to the sin that we want to justify us, but in the end has no power to justify us. That's why we're here today as the church that Jesus builds. Amen? Two things to consider as we contemplate both our our human condition and the person and work of Christ. First one is this. It's your sin that makes you think your sin is not that bad. So when we're talking about the human condition is that we are sinners under God's wrath, alienated from God, totally depraved. It's your sin that makes you think your sin is not that bad. Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Jeremiah goes, who can understand it? So what do we do then? What do we do with all this talk about the human condition? Well, here's what some of us try to do when we we kind of step into this and this hits us right in our face. We say, right, but, right, I get that I'm not that great, but, and what I mean is that the first thing that Adam said when God confronted him on his cosmic disobedience, which is what it was, was, what did he say? He, he said a right but. It was even worse though. He said, it was the woman you gave me. Shame causes us to cast blame. I'm not that bad. It's not my fault. 
I was forced into it. It can't just be me. Right? We, hear, we hear kids saying stuff like that to us all the time. Our default answer seems to be when it comes to our sin, right, but, or it's not my fault. But the reality is that Adam smudged the paint on the canvas that God had created. Adam was created to enjoy God and to enjoy what God created in the way that God, by the way, who was creator, created him to enjoy it. Like here's an example. When you, when you tell your child not to run into the street, it's not because there's something wrong with streets. It's not because in and of itself, asphalt is such a big deal, right? It's not that there's something wrong with cars. It's not that we think that these big, you know, machines that people have made for us to travel in, like, oh no, man, the problem is the car. The problem is not the car. When your kid runs out into the street, trying his best to get hit by that car, right? What's wrong is your child is making a decision from the heart that will destroy them if they disobey you. The problem with all disobedience is it lacks humility. Your child thinks they know better than you. So if you're a kid sitting here right now and you're kind of going, I mean, I think I do know better than my mom and dad. Well, let me just tell you, because I want your mom and dad to like me a lot by the end of the sermon, you, you don't know more than your mom and dad because they were put into your life to instruct you and to raise you. And, and sometimes they don't do a great job at that, all right? So I'm going to side with you here for a minute, but we have God and his grace for those things. But that's, that's always the problem with our disobedience, that it's rooted in a lack of humility. Adam was deceived into thinking he knew better than God. But humility is what moves our hearts to confess our dilemma before God. Let's turn to Luke 18. I'm going to read a parable. Luke 18, verse 9. I'm just going to start reading. He also told Jesus this parable to him who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And he, this was the parable he told. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, remember this is the righteous sort of leader, Bible teacher, pastor of the day. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted. It's a phenomenal parable for us. Jesus is saying that there is hope for the person who finally recognizes who they really are. And the reality is that we are always in the former category until we come to the Lord. We're all the Pharisee until we come to the Lord with the realization that we're the tax collector. And that might be hard for, for some of you to hear. It's hard for me to hear. 
to think that you might not be as good as you think you are or to think that you're so far gone that the Lord won't receive you if you've come to him. 1 John 1 verse 9 tells us the opposite of both of those dilemmas when it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's your sin that makes you think your sin is not that bad until you respond to Jesus with humility. Secondly and finally, it's Jesus Christ who gives you an identity apart from your sin. So we're image bearers, we, we established that, made in the image of God, but that image has been marred and it creates all of these false identities that we attempt to hold on to and live out just hoping that they will be good enough to justify us before God. So we say stuff like this, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty compassionate woman. I'm a good student. I'm an obedient kid. I'm a generous person. I'm a spiritual person. I'm an honest person, Ronnie. All good things. Just not good enough to be the identity that justifies you before a holy God. Think about that. If it was, if it was good enough, what was God thinking by sending his son to justify and give you a new identity that's acceptable to him? What was he thinking? What kind of God does that make him if it was in fact that all of those things I just listed were in fact good enough to justify you before the Lord and be the identity that was acceptable when you stand before him for all eternity. You guys know that show Fixer Upper, The Gains, Magnolia. Um, I think somebody just said, oh, geez, I, I hear you. Um, but we can tend to view our lives kind of like that show Fixer Upper, right? I got this house. There's some issues. I get it. A little wear and tear. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot to work with, right? And if I fix some things up, it'll become livable in the end. That's really the, the gist behind Fixer Upper. Jesus didn't come to fix you up. He didn't come to make you more livable. He came to make all things new. My dad owned a, uh, a trucking company for, uh, for, for most of my life growing up with him. And what the company did was they specialized in delivering these little things called heart valves um, to patients who were having heart surgery and they were lying on the hospital bed and they needed these valves to be replaced because these, these, the, you know, the valves they were born with were clogged up and they needed to be replaced. And so what my dad did, what his company did, was he would pick up these valves or these tiny little boxes and he would rush. Sometimes he would even get a police escort to do this because there'd be somebody on the bed waiting for this valve. In the middle of surgery, he'd have to rush to the hospital to deliver these heart valves so that these patients could be saved and that the, the heart surgery would be successful. The problem is, is that that didn't cure that person for the rest of their life. Spiritually, no matter what we do, we still have a sick heart. It's not just a face that needs a facelift. Christ came to give you a new heart. And with that heart comes a new identity 
And you know what it does? It allows all those other things to be redeemed. All those other character qualities to be redeemed. So instead of exhausting yourself, trying to be a pretty decent guy, a really compassionate woman, a good student, an obedient kid, a generous, spiritual, or honest person, and hope that, hey, man, I got that going for me. This is enough to justify me. Those actually become the very qualities that point to Jesus who has already justified and saved you. That's the effect that the work of the person of Jesus Christ has on you and our sin. Man, it is the glorious message of the gospel. It's the good news. It's the best news that any of you can have today if it's not something that you have humbled yourself to receive and experience the life change that comes with it. That now you are not just a person floundering, just making up stuff about what you think is acceptable to God. But now you know what is acceptable to God. And it's not you, it's a person that came for you to embrace you, to pull you in, to show you compassion, to say, come to me, you weary, heavy laborers. All these exhausting things you do, and I will give you rest if you just trust in me. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. This is what happens when we humble ourselves before Jesus Christ. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so, beloved, I urge you as sojourners, exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We'll talk a little bit about what that means later on in the series. So let me invite you all as we close our eyes now and go before the Lord. The invitation is, it's waiting for all of us who have not embraced the gospel, who are still trying and fighting and justifying and saying, right, but, or saying it's not my fault. The gospel is for you. The good news of Jesus Christ is for all those who will come to Christ and say, Lord, I realize I don't have it. I don't have what it takes. I need cleansing. I need my sins forgiven. I need to be humbled. I need to receive the work you did on the cross because it was out of mercy and love and grace. I realize I can't keep trying. My efforts are futile. And this good news is also for those of you who have embraced the gospel. It's also for you to be reminded once again of your place before God as redeemed, as no longer walking and serving the passions of your flesh. You are being changed from one degree of glory to another. So in all of these things, we embrace the person 
and the work of Jesus Christ, recognizing who we are, not wanting to be in that place. And for those who have been delivered from that place, giving praise and glory to God because of that work. But God would, God would desire that everybody in these seats in this warehouse today would know him, would be repenters, and would be drafted into the family of God. So if that is you, we invite you to that place that you would go before the Lord in repentance, be honest with him, and come into this saving relationship so that we can invite you in to this family with joy. And you can be a redeemed sinner with the rest and with the best of us. So Lord, we thank you for this truth. We pray that it would change us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.